our scheduled time. I also wanted to let you know that uh, this session is actually being podcast as well. Uh, so any questions at the end, I'll repeat them uh, and we'll be ready to go from there. So good morning. My name is Scott Strange. I'm from the Timberlane Regional School District in Plastow, New Hampshire. And we're talking today about building community connections and you'll see today a lot of examples uh, of community uh, outreach and connections and we're, what we're talking really here about is what are the essential elements that both schools, uh, communities, and uh, historical institutions and museums really need to focus on in order to bring collaboration to reality. Uh, what you'll be seeing today are a number of um, ASLH National Award of Merit award winners. Uh, our school system has won uh, three consecutive ones, so we're very proud of that. And also Steve Barkas is here uh, from the Gunn Memorial Museum in Connecticut, and they've won uh, an American uh, Association of State and Local History uh, National Award of Merit as well. So we're here to talk about what those collaborations are and how they come together. Let me introduce our uh, front table to you here. Uh, first, we have Ken Torino from Historic New England. I want to get everybody's uh, information right here. Uh, and Ken is the Manager of Community Engagement and Exhibitions at the Historic New England, the largest regional heritage organization in America. He oversees both the Traveling Exhibition Program and the organization's 100 Years, 100 Communities Project, which you'll hear about a little bit later on, uh, a hallmark of Historic New England's centennial, which he also oversees. Ken also teaches at the Tufts University Museum Studies Program. So we're very proud and uh, happy to have him here with us today. Uh, and we're also proud to be a collaborator uh, with that organization. Next to him is Steve Barkas. Uh, Steve is a lifelong resident of Connecticut, born in 1980, uh, raised and schooled in Watertown, where he still resides, graduated from the University of Connecticut with a BA in anthropology, and is completing his master's degree in historical archaeology at the University of Massachusetts in Boston. He has been a curator of the Gunn Memorial Library and Museum. Move that forward. There we are. And... Um, is a, uh, he is a professional archaeologist, also employed with the Archaeological Consulting Services in Guilford, and has participated in numerous excavations throughout the Northeast. He's the former curator of the Watertown Historical Society and currently serves as their, uh, on their board of directors. He's also a trustee of the Connecticut League of Historical Organizations. Under Stephen's guidance, the Gunn Memorial Museum and Shupog Valley Middle School were the recipients of both the American Association for State and Local History's Award of Merit and the WOW Award in 2009 for their collaboration on Abner Mitch the Abner Mitchell Project, and he'll be talking about that project with you today. Next to him is Eric Constantino. He is the Director of Theater Arts at the Timberlane Regional School uh, High School. He is a 25-year veteran of teaching, also a uh, Disney National Teacher Award winner. Uh, sitting next to him is Joshua Silvera. He is um, the editor of uh, the, the uh, chief editor for Blind Squirrel Productions, which is our production company inside of our school, which has developed all the DVDs uh, and documentaries that you'll see about today. Uh, Josh is a 12-year veteran. He also spent two years, two summers, uh, teaching in China as well. So he's a world-traveled uh, veteran of ours. We have two other people with us today. We're under the table, but they're important to our work. Uh, and they are uh, key members of the Blind Squirrel production team. Uh, Dean Zanello, who was our technical director for our high school, he's been in that position for seven years uh, and has been crucial in all of our work and collaboration. And Stephen Rugoletti, who is our lighting and sound technician, uh, as well as a main cameraman for our production company. And he has been a science teacher in our school for 21 years. I'm Scott Strange. I'm the director of secondary education at the Timberlane Regional School District, 20-year veteran of teaching, 
Um, but also, I have sort of a foot in both worlds. I was also the director of educational and internship programs for four years at the Peabody Essex Museum in Salem. Uh, so I've seen this uh, from both sides uh, and come at it from a, a unique angle. So those are the people that are with us today. Just wanted to talk a little bit about uh, collaboration and community outreach and coordination and talk about it in sort of a top 10 list in the Dave Letterman style. Um, the first thing to think about is what do you have to offer? Establish your roles early. Be clear about each member's role and recognize and play to your strengths. And I'm just going to put these up here very quickly because each of our people here uh, are going to be talking about these in detail and you'll see um, how each of these sort of played out in the different collaborations that we'll be dealing with. So know your role, understand your role, what do you have to offer, uh, be clear about those roles and play to your strengths because everybody brings something to the table. Start early. As a school system, what I always say is, on that first day, August 26th for us this year, that's when you start hearing that click, 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 click as the roller coaster goes up the hill. And as soon as the kids walk through the door, that roller coaster shoots down that hill on the other side and it picks up speed and it does not stop until the very end of the year. So for a museum, you need to be conscious of their schedule. You need to be conscious of what they're doing and when they're doing it. So make contact with the school in August or September, right when that click is happening and they're getting up that hill, or even sometimes getting in touch with them in June when they're wrapping up their year and saying, hey, you know, what can we do over the summer? Can we talk? Can we at least make contact uh, and start to think about some of the things that we can do and how we can work together uh, over the course of the, the summer and getting ready uh, for the upcoming school year. Find the school's mission statement. There's a number of groups that uh, work with accreditation for high schools and elementary schools and middle schools. And one of the things that they ask each school to come up with is their mission statement. So I would encourage you as a museum, and this is something that I would do when I worked with Peabody Essex, we worked with nine communities on the North Shore for our internship program. Go to their school's website, find their mission statement, and then see how you can help to carry that mission statement out. And now as a school system, we look to the museums and say what are their missions and how can we help them articulate that because a museum loves nothing more than that front page picture of kids in their collections having a great time or on the field trip that really sort of articulates one of the standards that they happen to be meeting. So define how you can help carry that out and that goes both ways, schools and museums and help to answer the question why are we doing this? What is the purpose? Why are we getting together here to do this collaboration? And you, again, you'll see all of these uh, writ large in the, pro in the projects that we'll be talking about. What does everybody have to gain? What's the end product? There's something to come out of this. Whether it be a written assignment in the school, whether it be part of a, uh, an exhibit at a museum, we'll now have a section that will be dedicated to this. Uh, is there some kind of publication to come out of this? Is there a paper to be written? Uh, is there a DVD? Uh, is there a documentary? Is there some, what's the end product? And you need to be really clear with that, and that goes back to your time frames and your schedules to say, we need to produce this by this point. And how will it be used? How will the museum use the final product? How will the school use the final product? And again, you'll see how this all plays out uh, in the different projects that we'll be talking about here today. Connection to the curriculum. Reach out with ideas, suggestions, and possibilities to help schools do this. A lot of schools now also have their curriculum posted online 
or when you contact a school, say, could you send us your history curriculum? Could you send us your science curriculum? Could you send us your you know, social studies, English curriculum, math curriculum, whatever it happens to be, whatever kinds of connects you want to make, and really find out ways that you know your collection better than anybody else, and the school knows its curriculum better than anybody else. So that cross-section really comes in when you say, okay, what can we do? How can we bring this curriculum to life? What do you have in your collection, both on display and not on display, that can specifically connect? Teachers now have to justify time out of classroom. A lot of states have time on learning uh, sort of uh, regulations. For instance, in New Hampshire, it's 990 hours contact time. Uh, so we have to say, okay, we're going on a field trip. What's it for? As it says here, field trips are no longer dump and wander adventures. The bus pulls up, everybody's got their lunch bag and their sub in there, and they dump them off and they drive away, and everybody wanders around, and then we get back on the bus and we go home. It's very different now. Uh, and we, we have to be specific about our goals and objectives for that field trip and what, are, what is the final product and what are we coming to. Find the torchbearer. We have torchbearers in this room right now. Uh, who is the person that is going to carry your flame for you in that school? It may be different from project to project depending on what you're doing. It may tap into the social studies department, it may tap into the English department, it may tap into the math, the science, the, um, you know, anything fine and applied arts, whatever it happens to be, music, find the person who already takes field trips. Not everybody does. There's a misconception that everybody takes field trips. No, especially when you get to the high school level. They're sort of frowned upon. But the people that we have here from our school today have redefined the word field trip. Uh, it now means much more than it used to. Uh, and it is now much more of a powerful entity. And is there a staff member in that school who is a buff in the area of your museum's collections? Can you tap into that person and get them excited and get them uh, engaged? And we'll talk about that again along the way. Clear communication. What are the expectations? What are the meeting times? As I said, once that roller coaster gets going for, for school teachers, it's arms up, screaming the whole way until June. So the timing is crucial. Make sure that we can fit everything into the schedule. Uh, timelines and follow-up. How are we going to set up this cycle of communication? Because the museum tempo is much different from the school tempo. Uh, and you sort of have to be aware of each other's uh, ongoings so that you can make that communication clear. Uh, you know, there, there's peaks and valleys in the museum schedule. Are we getting ready for a big installation? Is that big installation here? You know, th that the curators are on different patterns. Uh, the people in the education department are on different patterns. The people in school are on different patterns. So finding those intersections and making sure that you've got that time frame and that communication clearly set up so that nobody is left uh, in the balance. Notify the top. Always go through the administration of a building. That's on both sides. That's the museum and the school. Let everybody know what's going on. There's nothing that a principal hates more than to be caught off guard, to get a call from a parent or a call from a, uh, from a, a newspaper saying, hey, this great project. And they're like, I have no idea what you're talking about. They don't want to be stuck there. And anybody in the museum does not want to be stuck there if the, if the newspaper calls and they say, I have no information for you. Nobody wants to get caught there. So starting at the top, notifying, and sometimes we'll tell you, some of us, uh, we'll, you know, it's better to ask for forgiveness than permission. Sometimes we sort of step out and say, oh, by the, I didn't know that, that we couldn't do that. Sorry, but look what we did. Uh, so you know, letting the top know what's going on and keeping them informed and keeping all administrators and collaborators informed every step of the way. The extra mile. 
And this was something that we did continuously at the Peabody Essex Museum, the backstage pass. What can you offer a school that you know, maybe not everybody will get to see? Maybe there's a certain part of the collection that's not on display. Maybe there's something, there's a person that's coming, there's an artist in residence who's working there. Maybe we can get you a couple of hours with that person. Everybody loves to have that little, oh, and we can also do this for you. And I'll talk about one of the things that we have offered as a school uh, for a project that we're currently working on about Civil War soldiers in New Hampshire. We have a New Hampshire regiment, uh, reenactors regiment, who has a band. And we have this, one of the state-of-the-art performing arts centers in all of New Hampshire at our school. So their, their reenactment band is coming to our, our performing arts center to record the soundtrack for our documentary. So we offer that to them, and then they come in and they work with us. So what does everybody have to give? Uh, special events, programming, anything up and above and beyond. Chotsky's and chump change. Every little bit helps. Anything that you can offer. Think uh, slight short-term loss. We can give you a discount on uh, admission if you bring this group to, your, to our museum? Uh, and, you know, is there a series of visits that we can now set up? Does the entire third grade do this? What is the entire fifth grade doing, and can we bring them in cycles? Or can we send somebody to your school with a small box of objects to work with them? How can we do those kinds of things? Can we give you small bookmarks from our museum? Can we give you pencils? Anything. Teachers love free stuff. Anything you can give them. You know, free for me, as the teachers always say, right? And start small and think big. Take that little first step and then develop out from there. So, I'm done talking. I'm going to turn it over to the museum professionals and teachers who are doing this daily, constantly, have been part of these larger projects and collaborations. The ten things that I've laid out for you here are now going to be brought to life by the people that we have to come and speak to you today. So the first person that will be talking to you today is Steve Barkus. He is from, again, the Gunn Memorial Library and Museum in Connecticut. He will talk about his projects and what he's been doing. Can I stick this in here somewhere? Does that work from there? <clears throat> thank you, Scott, and thank you also to Eric, Josh, and Ken for inviting me to talk to you today about the annual collaborative history project of the Chipaug Valley Middle School and the Gunn Memorial Museum. I'm going to quickly tell you about who we are, how our project happened, how it was structured, and what it takes to make it happen so that you will be able to take some ideas from here, from our project, back home with you and adapt them to fit your own communities. So who we are, the Gunn Museum and Chapog School are located here in northwestern Connecticut in the small town of Washington where the star is. <clears throat> we are a small rural town with a population of about 3,500. Our town is uniquely fortunate in many ways. Many residents are descended from families who have lived in town for a long time and they don't like to throw things away and we really like those folks. Okay. Is that better? Okay. Um, so we are also um, very lucky to have many people in town who are accustomed to thinking creatively. 
We are located about two hours outside of New York City and have had a strong cultural connection to the city since the mid-19th century. Many New Yorkers still have weekend and summer houses in our town, and Washington is also lucky to be the home of three private boarding schools. So here we are, the Gun Memorial Library on the left is the stone structure, and the Gun Museum is the local history museum on the right. We are unique because we're one institution located in separate buildings adjacent to each other on Washington Green with a mission to promote literacy, education, and the preservation of the town's history and culture. The Gun Museum has 1.5 employees. I am the one, and I do everything from create exhibits to uh, go up on the roof and clean the gutters and to clean the bathrooms, and I also present lectures and assist researchers. So I do it all and I have a part-time assistant to uh, join in all this fun. The Chippewa Valley Middle School is the public, regional, middle, and high school for our area. It has grades seven through 12. It is located in Washington, which is the largest of the three component communities. Michael Croft's five eighth grade social studies classes that we work with total around 87 students. The gunnery is a private nine to 12 co-educational boarding school in Washington that has been located across the street from the Gun Memorial Museum since 1850. I include the gunnery here because the story of our project starts there. So how did it happen? The power of serendipity can't be underestimated in innovative programs and ideas. The origin of our award-winning collaborative program was primarily the result of good luck. That said, we can look back at what happened to extract some key elements that made everything work for our tiny organization in a small town in rural Connecticut. Due to the way that our organization is structured, if we had thought of this project ourselves and tried to go through the conventional channels to get it approved and funded, it would never have happened. Instead, however, a couple conversations in informal settings that followed on a series of history projects at the gunnery paved the way for our collaborative project with the eighth graders at Chapaug School. Our collaborative project came about because of Paula Krimsky, the archivist at the gunnery school. She is a local person with deep roots in the community. She developed a project in 2005 for one gunnery senior each year who is known as the Gun Scholar. They use resources from the school's archives to do a research project about some aspect of the school, its alumni, and larger cultural and historical issues. The culmination of that project includes a presentation by the student and publication of a research paper. Because the Gun Museum and the Gunnery are close both physically and in the nature of their collections, the Gun Scholar usually interacts with the museum at some point in their project. The Gunnery archivist, Paula, had a conversation with a woman in town whose roots go back to the 18th century and who had a collection of 50 letters written by an ancestor named Abner Mitchell from his service in the Civil War. The letters had not been read since they were written. Serendipity remained active because many faculty members at the gunnery live on campus and eat meals at school together. A gunnery faculty member is married to Chapaug Social Studies teacher Michael Croft. Paula didn't feel that these letters were appropriate for her Gun Scholar project, but during a school dinner where she was sitting with Michael and his wife, the idea of having him use the letters for a Civil War curriculum at Chapaug School was hatched. The idea fell on very fertile ground. 
and Michael recognized the opportunity to, to teach his students something in the curriculum that would expose them directly to the real, authentic, and immediate experience of actual people living through the events they had to learn about. It didn't hurt that the story underlying the letters was itself compelling and touched on things like family life and relations that the students could relate to on a personal level. The Gunn Museum did not become involved in the Abner Mitchell project until the teacher, Michael Croft, came to the Gunn Museum to do research on Abner Mitchell. The museum has photographs of him and his family in its collection, some artifacts along with documentation about the tragic family story. At that point in 2007, I was newly hired and was looking to start some community outreach. I recognized that Michael was one of these torchbearers and I wanted to collaborate with him. I asked him if he would be interested in having his students create an exhibit about their project at the Gun Museum. He thought it was a great idea and the rest is history. So how was our project structured and how is it structured? Michael Croft, the social studies teacher, recognized that his students had varying degrees of interest, skills, and maturity. So one of the most important elements of this project was that he never expected the students to all do the same things. Students were required to apply for the tasks they wanted to pursue. This was an important part of the process because the students themselves identified their areas of interest and commitment. The students who chose to fundraise for the publication of the booklet, for instance, had to write letters and contact potential funders. Jobs that students applied for include transcriber, researcher, illustrator, historian, fundraiser, web designer, genealogist, literary contributor, student curator, and there are always two editors responsible for the publication of the booklet. So the five key elements of our projects include the transcriptions. So these are basically um, the primary source documents that are used in our projects. And they have varied from letters to diaries to deeds. The students are provided with photocopies, scans, or digital pictures of the original documents which they work with. Research is the next key element. They research the lives of the peoples in the primary source documents. The students develop a family tree by doing research at the museum and on Ancestry.com. The students also seek out photographs of, seek out and photograph the local sites associated with the people mentioned in the primary source documents. So what we do is we go to the cemetery where they're buried to find their gravesite. We track down their homes and we go and take pictures of those and any businesses that they might have operated in town. And they also research the context, the time period, and the events surrounding um, the primary source documents using secondary sources from the museum, the library, and online. Essays are the third key element of our project. They write essays about the primary source documents and their context. The fourth key element is creative interpretations of the primary source documents. These include illustrations um, for students, for instance, that are artistically inclined, literary contributions like poems and maps. And of course, the fifth element is the final product. This is a way for the students to share their research like professionals with the public. The final products have varied from the design and publication of a booklet of transcriptions essays, interpretive illustrations, and literary contributions 
to an exhibit at the museum, to a website, and to some other possibilities, um, including uh, possible lectures, plays, or films, which you'll hear about a little bit later. And this is a, a huge benefit to us at the museum because these primary source documents, you know, have usually sat around for 20 or 30 years in the museum. We don't have the time to sit down and transcribe them. So now we have transcribed primary source documents accessible for other researchers and ourselves at the museum. So let me quickly run through some of the projects that we've done. The Abner Mitchell letters, as I said, were the first project that we worked on. These were 50 Civil War letters that did not belong to the museum. The photocopies were made of the originals and students transcribed those. With this project, the museum specifically assisted with the background research, genealogy, and exhibit construction. The students' final products were an exhibit at the museum, which you see here, and a spiral-bound book of the transcriptions interpretive illustrations, historical essays, and literary contributions. The books usually cost between $10 and $20 each to print at our local printer, depending on how many color images you include and how large your order is. Each student buys a book, and circulating and reference copies are also available for the public to check out at the Gunn Library and Museum. We also hosted an opening reception for their exhibit at the museum. Um, we tied that into another larger exhibit that we were opening at the gun. We invited several Civil War reenactors who set up a small camp out front at the museum. And we also invited the students and Michael Croft, the teacher, to the opening. This is important because you want them to feel closely involved in the project. Um, so you should invite them to all events that you're having. So the students actually did come and they brought their parents. Uh, several served as docents and led visitors through their exhibit. The next project that they worked on were the Fremont letters. The Gun Museum was not involved at all in the second project where the Chapaug students transcribed the letters of Jesse Fremont from the collection of the Gunnery School. The letters were written to the headmaster of the Gunnery about Jesse's son Charlie who was a student there in the 1850s. We were all very satisfied with the Abner Mitchell project, but at this point we didn't think what we were doing was anything special, and the idea of making this an annual collaborative project never entered our heads. That was until Emmy award-winning Connecticut TV journalist, news anchor, and radio personality Diane Smith called the Gun Museum to inquire about the Abner Mitchell project and exhibit that was still on display. She was searching the internet and read about the student's exhibit in a small blurb on our website. Diane hosts a program on Connecticut Public Television called Positively Connecticut that features stories that give Connecticut its character. And she wanted to feature the Abner Mitchell Project on her show. So that really opened up our eyes. Diane filmed at Chapaug, at the Gun Museum, and around town interviewing the teacher, the students, Paula Krimsky and the descendants, as you can see here. It aired throughout Connecticut several times and we received maximum exposure. Newly excited about what the students had accomplished with the Abner Mitchell Project, we were encouraged to apply for an award of merit through the Connecticut League of History Organizations and made plans to make the collaborative history project between the Gunn Museum and Chapaug School an annual endeavor. Our next collaborative project was uh, working with the Jerome Titus Diary. 
We photographed an 1864 diary of Washington Civil War soldier Jerome Titus, and the students transcribed half of it. Two of the five student curators did research and located his grave. They did record searches in the town hall to track down his house. And this all happened in one day after school with me. So it was a very productive day. They created a small exhibit in the museum. I taught them how to request artifacts from other museums by searching their online catalogs and sent emails, and they sent the emails requesting the loans which included a cobbler's bench, a flute, because Jerome was a musician in the Civil War, and a Civil War sword. The student curators also contacted family members, one of them you see here on the left in this picture, uh, who were still living in the area, and they provided the only known picture of Jerome. The students also published their book of transcriptions, interpretive illustrations, historical essays, and literary contributions. The student curator served as docents during the opening reception answering questions. The Civil War reenactors attended the opening reception in period clothing without me even asking them to attend. Um, we've become very good friends and they're very supportive of the um, students' projects and they're very interested in sharing living history with them. So this year's project was the Cogswell Whittlesley Papers and the students transcribed a document collection from the 18th century founders of the New Preston section of Washington, the Cogswells. <clears throat> For this project, I started with an introductory presentation in their classroom to get, their, to get them oriented um, about the history of the town, focusing on the topic that they were concentrating on, as well as the resources that were available to them. When I worked with the group of student curators, I discussed um, the museum methodology, exhibit creation, research techniques, and other items. We unfortunately hit many roadblocks, uh, roadblocks with this project. Despite having just won the AASLH Award of Merit and WOW Award last year, the documents the students were working with this year were business and legal documents like deeds and receipts. So these were not as compelling as the personal correspondence like in past projects. So there was not an easily accessible, cohesive story to hand to the students. The story needed to be created from supplementary materials which I provided them. The documents the students were working with this year, <clears throat> as I mentioned, were business and legal documents. But there was a great story, it just needed to be um, pulled together. The Cogswell Tavern is the location where George Washington, the first president of the United States, and the person our town is named after, recorded in his journal on May 25, 1781, that he breakfasted at Squire Cogswell's. But I forgot that these were eighth graders, not graduate students, and I expected them to do more than they were actually capable of. I learned a lesson, keep your projects small and simple, and personal correspondence is always better than is always the best type of primary source material for young students to work with. It didn't help that the teacher, Michael Croft, took a leave of absence for the spring semester to raise his son this year, leaving the project in the hands of a substitute. Also, the museum budget was cut and our executive director reassessed institutional priorities in this difficult, difficult economy. 
So the primary goal was to survive and I was not able to spend as much time working with the students at the school this year. That being said, they did publish a book and create a small website from a free provider showcasing their transcriptions, illustrative essays, and research instead of creating an exhibit at the museum. So what does it take to make this happen? There are eight ingredients that you need in your community. A local story that can be connected to a larger one that is in the curriculum. What are the topics your teacher is required to teach? No community exists outside the larger region or national context. Every community has something that illustrates the local response to a larger story. If the local historical society or museum doesn't have the material, every community has someone who doesn't like to throw things away. More than one person with a frame of mind that sees opportunities instead of difficulties. Number three, people in the community who are good at communication and relationship building. This helps people identify the opportunities which may not be easily visible. Number four, a teacher uh, who has the creativity and mental flexibility to see opportunities like this and run with them. This is the torchbearer. Number five, a school system that gives its teachers some flexibility in how they conduct their classes. Number six, willingness of some of the museums, excuse me, willingness of some, someone at the museum or the historical society to commit the time, and this takes a lot of time to work with the students. Also, a responsive local news outlet, this could be radio, TV, or newspaper to help get the word out about the project. And finally, a willingness to work to the strengths of the students. So quickly, some unexpected results of our project. Student volunteers for other museum events. We have a cemetery tour every year around Halloween and they actually volunteered to be actors and tour guides. Some students also participated in our scrapbook exhibit by loaning their modern versions to compare to the old ones in our collection. And this is also in addition to all the Civil War reenactors that have become volunteers at the museum. They show up um, whenever we need them for a program, and they also act as uh, tour guides in our cemetery tour, and they're assisting us with our major exhibit on the Civil War next year. State recognition was also unexpected. We were the recipients of the Award of Merit from the Connecticut League of History Organizations. Our collaborative project is featured in Diane Smith's new book, Seasons of Connecticut, and she'll be giving a talk in a couple weeks at The Gun, and we'll be doing a book signing. And I was also asked to become a board member on the Connecticut League of History Organizations and was invited to sit on the curriculum committee of Connecticut's upcoming Civil War sesquicentennial commemoration. Also unexpected was the national recognition we're recipients of the AASLH Award of Merit and one of five WOW Award winners last year in Indianapolis. Also, Dr. Walter Powell, who you see down on the left there, author, historian, and professor of history at Mount St. Mary's University in Maryland, and longtime director of planning and historic preservation at Gettysburg, found out about our collaborative project online while doing some research. He was also interested, he was so interested in our project that he offered to drive six hours to Connecticut to present a Revolutionary War Living History program for this year's class working on the Cogswell Papers. He also presented a lecture 
Connecticut at Gettysburg at the Gunn Museum and agreed to be our consultant for our Civil War exhibit in 2011. Many other people around the country, especially Civil War buffs, have contacted us about the project, purchased copies of the book, and have even sent donations to the school and the museum. And of course, Scott wrote a wonderful article about his and our collaborative projects in the spring 2010 issue of History News. And of course, um, <clears throat> of course, I'm here with you today in Oklahoma City. And I just want to quickly mention this book. I know I'm out of time, but Connecting Place-Based Education, Connecting Classrooms and Communities by David Sobel is um, a book that I highly recommend to you if you're interested in collaborating with the schools in your town. The basic premise of this book is the recognition that students' local community is, the one, is one of the primary resources for learning. The Chopaug Valley Middle School and the Gun Memorial Museum Collaborative History Project is an excellent example of place-based education. Just remember to keep the emphasis on local history and you will strengthen your schools, museums, and communities in the process. I'd like to now hand it off to Eric, who's going to talk about his project. Good morning, everyone. A few years ago, we created a series of plays. We produced a series of plays called Theater on Trial, focusing on three plays that had involved in it some sort of trial, um, notable trial. The first one, of course, was The Crucible, and then Inherit the Wind, and then um, ending it with the Laramie Project. So my goal when I do theater at Timberlane High School is to try to take theater out of the theater. If people just come to a show, watch the show, then go home, I really felt I failed um, to take it outside of the um, auditorium. So for The Crucible, we put together just a short documentary where we talked with the actors involved in the show. And then um, Scott and I had a conversation, and um, he said, you know, what can we do with uh, Inherit the Wind? How can we take it further? And out of the blue, I just said, you know, I'd really like to stand outside the courthouse where the um, Scopes trial took place. So typical Scott's like, all right, let's try. So Scott did some uh, poking around and um, got in touch with Bryan College down in Dayton, Tennessee, and lined up um, 14 people to talk with, people whose family members were involved in the Scopes trial. And so we went down to Tennessee and um, not just stood outside of the courthouse for the picture, you know, arms around each other, smiling and waving, but we conducted some interviews, not only at Bryan College, but inside the courthouse, um, sitting at Clarence Darrow's desk, which is one of those goosebump moments. Um, and that kind of collaboration was great with the college, um, a Christian University, Christian College. And so we put together a documentary based on kind of the history of the Scopes trial, something that students could see as a supplement, whether they're dealing with Inherit the Wind or studying that within a classroom setting. Um, what is also neat is when we started conducting the interviews, we would take, if the interviews were local, we would take students with us and not only put on the camera, and, and I would sit down, or Scott would sit down and, and interview these people, but then we'd get up and our students would sit down and throw some questions out also. 
kids would be running the camera and, and, and talking to us about the editing process, which was amazing. So we'll start off with just a short clip um, as kind of a preview of the first of our trilogy of documentaries called um, on, the, on the Scopes Trial. Um, and so we'll just watch that for a second. You all set? view of the Scopes trial because it's a great movie and it's a great play but it's a great play because it's a three-act morality play where for tolerance but it wasn't written about the Scopes trial I don't think the main interest was the Scopes trial but it was uh, a means of getting at some issues that were were of concern in our nation at that time well they didn't write the play to attack Brian they didn't write the play to attack anti-evolutionists they wrote the play much as um, Arthur Miller wrote, um, uh, wrote The Crucible as an attack on McCarthyism. People kind of get that confused because the play itself isn't actually an attack on religion. It's kind of just an, um, a defense against people who have one sort of, sort of mindset and it's kind of trying to drive people out of that. Inherit the Wind has become this amazing connection, not just to the past, to a real trial, but to things that are going on in our world today. I just would like to see the true story come out of what actually happened instead of the old tales that have always been told. So after we got um, our interviews done in Tennessee. Um, we, uh, we were driving back um, through Tennessee up to Kentucky because we visited the Creation Museum in Kentucky, one of the most harrowing experiences of my life. And um, so we, we toured that and, and, and Josh and, and Scott and I were driving and we were discussing, you know, what next, what next, what can we do next? And, and so we decided that, well, we can put this history component together but what about Darwin's impact on the world today? How has Darwin influenced our, our world in, in a sense of not just science um, and evolution, but even in just um, how we live our lives, how we, how we do our business? So um, we had read Summer for the Gods by Ed Larson. So um, in, in typical um, pushy Massachusetts fashion, we just started getting in touch with people. And we got in touch with him. We found out that he was going to be in Chicago. Uh, talking at the University of Chicago. We went out there, we sat down with him, we interviewed him for an hour and a half, um, and he said to us, um, I like you guys. Um, and we ended up at, a, actually ended up at a Cubs game with him the next day. Um, so we're sitting with the Pulitzer Prize winning author, holding a beer and watching um, my Cubs play and uh, lose, but it's another story. So um, Larson, 
was interested in the project, and so we put before him the, the question, can you maybe be our project historian for our films? He said, sure. And so now we had this connect with Ed Larson, who um, worked with us, watched our transcripts, looked at our, looked at our um, film piece by piece, gave us um, great um, uh, advice, and we, and we moved on. So we started looking at what's, how can we go further? So our next film, which turned into an hour film, um, What a Piece of Work is Man, focuses on the question of Darwin today. And so we started getting in touch with anyone we could think of who are, who's, in, who's interested and uh, the authority figures on the subject. People like um, Daniel Dennett, who is uh, one of the, considered one of um, America's um, uh, bulldogs for Darwin. We got in touch with him. We talked with um, Ken Miller who was one of the key people at the Dover um, trial, um, and also uh, Barbara King, um, Bishop um, Robinson, uh, the, the Episcopal Bishop of New Hampshire. And we just got all of these people on film, and then we turned that into what a piece of work is man. Um, just to take a step back, um, in, her, in our first film that you saw, kind of the amazing moment with that is we were invited back to Tennessee after we finished the film to uh, have a premiere of the film in the Ray County Courthouse um, and we just projected our film on the wall um, right behind um, just to the side of the judge's bench and it's again in, in um, one of those moments where you know I went back and told my kids many of them stared at me um, but some understood the gravitas of that situation. So here's um, just a bit of what a piece of work is a man. Creation and evolution debate, I think, is an outgrowth of that debate that we've been having for centuries. Darwin's idea is wonderful, but it snuck up on people and it upset them. I find uh, the theory of evolution uh, an inspiring thing. People would always assume that in defending evolution, you have to be an agnostic or an atheist. And it would come as a shock to them when I would say, no, I, I don't, I believe in God, I'm a fairly conventional Roman Catholic. Religion, you know, yelling at science, science yelling at religion, that is going on. However, there's an enormous amount flying under the radar of people talking to each other who don't think they're mutually exclusive. honored last year to be invited out um, by Pepperdine University to fly out to Malibu and um, present our film and talk there at a Darwin conference. Um, it was wonderful and what made it even more wonderful, of course, it was Malibu, California in September. Um, 
we took our kids to those interviews as whenever we could. And since a lot of our, the people we interviewed were within driving distance of New Hampshire, um, Daniel Dennett just uh, in the next state, um, we brought students and then they were still you know, creating interviews. We worked with historical societies down in the Ray County um, uh, Historical Society, working with them. Our film is there in their, um, in their museum. And just those kind of connections that you keep looking for. And we try to find torchbearers, not just within our school, but everywhere. And when you find about four or five torchbearers, some who have some authority, like in Ed Larson, then you just start to see those fires take off. And those fires then maintain their own, um, their own burning through their own uh, volition. Um, we also always try to have a student component also. And so the third part of our trilogy of, of films was um, talking with our own cast of the play. Um, plays like Inherit the Wind, The Laramie Project, come with controversy. Some of my students who were involved with the Timberlane players told me that either they, in all conscience, couldn't audition for Inherit the Wind or especially the Laramie Project or their parents wouldn't allow them. Right? Um, one girl um, who was cast who's in, in Inherit the Wind, very Christian young lady, um, was given an ultimatum by her parents, um, either you drop out of the play or we will not support you in this play. And so I remember consoling her opening night when she said, my parents have been to everything I've ever done and this is the first time they won't see me do something. Um, but that kind of arc of her discovery, where she was at one time just a confirmed, chipped in the, in the granite Christian, and then by the end of the play, she could see maybe there are balance points, maybe the conversation can happen. And watching that transformation in someone that young, well, that's why I've been teaching for 25 years. So. The third part of it is uh, a focus on how the kids perceived um, the play. And so this one's called um, The Right to be Wrong. Jennings Bryan and the fundamentalist in America had launched a nationwide crusade uh, to limit um, or stop the teaching of the theory of human evolution in public schools. The Scopes trial is really the first legal conflict in the United States regarding the theory of evolution. In the Scopes trial, you probably had some of the best, or the best, orators at the time with William Jennings Bryan and Clarence Darrow. Evolution changes your view of yourself. It puts you as part of the natural world rather than as separate from the natural world. Nobody prepared the world for Darwin. And his idea does turn. You may have figured out, you astute people, that the first and the third films are reversed. So, so the first one you saw was the student one. That was the um, history component. Okay. Um, as has been mentioned, 
I think it's the audacity of certain people just to get out there. And I think you need some audacity, um, whether you're working in museums, if you're in education. We weren't told we shouldn't be emailing people and asking them to, to do interviews. Um, Daniel Dennett um, rather gruffly emailed me back saying that he would be happy to meet with us at Tufts University at 2.15 that day. And when I told him, you know, we got out at 2.30, he said, well, sorry. And I just persisted. And finally he said, fine, I'll be at my house um, in Andover. You'll have an hour. And when we showed up, um, Josh and I looked at each other um, and saw this gruff man. By the end of the interview, he was sitting with us and he talked with us for about another 45 minutes, um, especially when two students were sitting there almost at his feet, um, just staring at him with idle, um, adulation. Um, so I think it's that audacity of just getting out there and making the connects. We sent out maybe 100 emails and phone calls to people. We heard back from maybe 30 people. 30% success rate, maybe on a standardized test is not so good, but a 30% success rate with people like this is wonderful. And so making those connections. Right? So from a school um, point of view, we're now working on our third trilogy uh, of films on the Laramie Project. And um, you know, the last Odyssey took us as far south as Tennessee, as far west as California. We have no idea where this next one's going to take us. Um, and that's the excitement of that journey. Okay, I'd like to turn it over to um, Ken and Josh. Thanks. I'm going to move quickly because we want to make sure that we give you all some time for questions. Uh, Josh is giving you a handout. I don't have a PowerPoint, but we are going to show you a little clip on our project also. But let me uh, step back and tell you. Historic New England you heard about. Uh, we're a New England organization. We have 36 historic properties and five of the six New England states. And 2010 is our centennial. And as part of that, we didn't want to just have the big party. We did have the big party. Uh, but we wanted to do something that was forward-looking. Um, when we were founded in 1910, our founder really thought it was important to collect contemporary material. So we looked at that and said, you know, the 20th century uh, history of our region is particularly important. We need to document it. We need to collect it and study it and interpret it. So we thought we would create 100 years, 100 communities where we would reach out and partner with organizations, all different kinds of organizations, um, over the next several years. This wasn't going to be done in just one year. Now I'm going to talk specifically about the Berlin Project, but just to give you an idea what some of these other community projects were, uh, we partnered with a dairy cooperative in Connecticut, in the Woodstock area, of six farms that have joined together. These are family farms. We did oral histories with them, and the final product there was an exhibition that is up in our barn and our property in Woodstock. But that exhibition is then is going to travel, and all the oral histories are appearing on the web. So it's benefiting the community, it's benefiting historic New England, and it was a, we view it as a real success. Another quick example is the History Project. When I said community, I mean all different kinds of community. We've partnered with another ASLH award winner, and uh, I'm chair of that committee. If you've got good projects, we want to hear about it, please apply for the Leadership in History Awards program. Um, the History Project is a group that collects 
uh, GLBT history, gay, lesbian, bisexual, and transgender history. We interpret um, a couple of our historic sites as the homes of gay men. And uh, one of those, uh, Beauport, uh, we collaborated with the History Project on a series of walking tours, house tours, which included receptions. We're also doing lectures at some of our other properties. That started in 2009. It's continuing throughout to 2010 with a whole series of programs, and it's going to continue in 2011, and we hope that partnership will continue. But now let me talk a little bit about the Berlin. But before even that, we passed out a handout. This is very similar to the document that you, uh, Scott put up on the uh, PowerPoint presentation when we first began. Uh, but this is an internal document that we did uh, in terms of when we were looking who to partner with and what to partner with. It just really informed us. So we actually fill this out for the, the uh, history project. Uh, project that we did with the dairy farm project and just to, I'm not going to go over in detail you have it you can read it but it, it reinforces a lot of what Scott says about clearly defining it the project what makes it unique what will be the end product and how are you going to disseminate that what are each roles of the partners that's very important and what are the steps to reach success uh, clearly defining the audience the outcomes and being very specific about all the groups that benefit from the project. We want as wide to get out as widely as possible with all of these projects and specifically explain how it will benefit the citizens of that community and how it will change or improve the lives of the intended um, audience. Now we also include, we want to know about promoting the project, how to find success, what are the measurable results, and uh, outcomes. Also, what we haven't talked about much, and I know it's really important to you all, the anticipated cost and budget for the project. Uh, you'll be amazed to know that the projects you've heard about with blind squirrels are done for a dime. Um, and it's really kind of amazing. You saw that they had some grant funding, and you can ask questions about that. So with the Berlin project, it was a three-way collaboration between Timberlane Regional High School, Historic New England, and the Berlin and Coos County Historical Society, which is a all-volunteer-run historical society up in northern um, New Hampshire. Uh, it has approximately 16,000 uh, residents. It's the largest city in the great uh, northern forest area. It's a small city. Uh, it has an eclectic mix of ethnic groups from all over Europe that settled there. It was the leading manufacturer of paper pulp in the country, if not the world. And what I'm sad to report, beginning in the 1970s, shutdowns, buyouts, and plant closings plagued the region, and that would continue up to the present day uh, with the last remaining plant closed and being dismantled and torn down in 2007. The event truly marked the end of an era for a region, and we decided that this history had to be collected and preserved. And over a year and a half, we went up to Berlin, and we met with the historical society members who helped us gather photos, um, who helped us set up interviews, and we ended up inter interviewing 42 people ranging in age from 24 to 91, and with that, we put together a final product of a DVD, 
and you're going to see just a clip of that in a minute. The web, uh, all of those oral histories were transcribed. That was part of our plan. They have to be transcribed. You can read many of those up on our Historic New England website where you can learn more about this project. And uh, eventually all those will, will be up on the web. And also there have been other added um, results. We won an ASLH award, uh, which we're very proud of. And we actually, that's our second award so far. New Hampshire Public Television is considering showing this film. Um, Chronicle, which is a half an hour program, did a whole segment on us that came up for the premiere of this. Um, let's see a little bit of the clip, and then I'm going to have Josh come up and just tell you about the effect on the Berlin community. There's just something so magical about this area and something that um, really needs to be preserved. The mill activity, the sporting activity, we are rich in sports history. We used to be called Hockey Town USA and we lost, we lost that, that title. All the people that have lived here all the different nationalities that have come and gone. We not only had French Canadians, we had Italians, we had Russians, we had the Norwegians. Uh, so it was uh, really, it, it was very much a, a, a very active melting pot and, and mixing pot of, of the uh, culture. For me, it was interesting just to learn who all these people were and what they did. Did they work in the mill? Did they work at Converse Rubber Company? Uh, did they work out of town? They all contributed to this city, and every one of them, they have to be preserved. I just liked people, and I liked learning about their stories, and learning about the past as well as, you know, the present. I think that's very important, this deep feeling about your community, your street, the people in it. It's a close-knit city, and everybody who grew up together, we're still together. I hope that future generations will continue to be proud of Berlin, and that they will try to continue uh, their roots, so we won't completely lose our, our, uh, our heritage. In the early 20th century, it was the largest producer of paper in the world. Its neighborhoods were a patchwork quilt of ethnic diversity. Irish Aiken. About the impact on the community. This was not just about nostalgia. We were really, that was really important. Uh, part of this. We didn't just want to be this about, you know, oh, we're this wonderful community and so on. This was about a really rough time that was going on in the community. So, Josh? Thank you, Ken. 
uh, being a social studies teacher, giving back to the community is probably one of the uh, greatest things that you can do. And I got to tell you, in my 12 years of teaching, this is probably one of the greatest moments that I have had as, as a social studies teacher. To, uh, as Ken uh, alluded to, this community had gone through some tough times and they were really down and out. And what we did is we brought this community together. And it was an amazing, an amazing afternoon. We uh, premiered this at the uh, downtown at the local theater. We sold out four shows. Over 500 people showed up. And when I say people showed up, people had showed up that hadn't seen each other in years and had lost contact. And suddenly they're sharing their stories again and they're watching this documentary and they're saying, oh my goodness, remember when? Did you? I totally forgot about that. And it was just this explosion of history that was potentially going to be lost, rediscovered. And anytime you can do that, and it does. I highly, highly recommend getting yourself, your students into your communities and getting involved in creating that community bond that is, is somewhat being lost in America in certain areas. And uh, this is a perfect example of a city that was really down and out. And we, I think we revitalized their, their pride in, in their city, the past, where they are now, acknowledging perhaps you know they're not exactly where they want to be, and reevaluating what direction they want to go in. And that got we got so many people involved from, as Ken alluded to, from people in their 20s all the way into the, to their 90s. And we also got the, the local high school in, uh, involved, the local historic society, obviously, and, and teachers at the high school as well. So we hope that we gave something back and we, that we gave them a shot of adrenaline of looking at their, at their community and discovering, okay, you know what? What is, in, what is in danger of being lost? Let's try and preserve it. And it's a collaboration of elders, of historical societies, and uh, high school students as well. So I guess that's my message to you because I want you to feel what I felt when this all came together and I was able to just step back and say, I think I did something good here and I, I think I contributed to this community. So I highly recommend getting out there, getting in touch with your local um, historical societies and getting those kids out there too. Thank you. Let me just add, this was a great boon, uh, capacity building for the volunteer organization. Uh, we've been able, we don't like one-shot deals, so we're continuing to work with them. Um, they have since got a major grant for the uh, Fixing the Historical Society. They are showing this film out at the nursing homes. Uh, we're going up to Plymouth, New Hampshire on Monday night, and they're showing this at the at uh, Plymouth State University. Um, and we're hoping New Hampshire Public Television is going to let us know this month whether they're going to show it. We had a premiere down at the high school, at Timberlane Regional High School. And again, you can go to our website and read some of the oral histories. So I think with that, we'll just open up for questions. Any? <laughs> Um, absolutely. The, uh, in the community of Berlin, all the proceeds are going to the Historical Society, but you can actually order this online on Amazon, the film. So that was all the films that were mentioned today. So that's something else, you know, that we, Historic New England, I mean, we didn't care anything about the money. This was about giving back to the community and collecting and preserving this. So any proceeds, they have sold, what, over 1,500 at what, 20 bucks a pop? 12. 12, it's very reasonable. Anyway, other questions? So they've, they've taken the money that they, they've taken the money from the sales of the films and they've, they, I think they just replaced some of their windows. So it's, you know, it's really sort of generating some income for that particular group to help them to preserve uh, you know, the building itself and then run some programs. Uh, and they're 
also the sort of buddies who promoted in there. He brought his people Christmas. Yeah. Kendra. Let me just repeat the question. So the, did this, uh, the Berlin project, uh, spark anything in the community about the future? Is that what you're asking? And, and it, well, um, I'll, I'll start and then Maybe if we're going to get this, I should hand the mic off to Scott. Um, the, that was peppered throughout the film in terms of where can we go from here. Um, and, you know, did it, did it spark debate and talk? Yes. You know, anything practical, um, I think that still remains to be seen. I think that's really kind of beyond the scope of, of this. But it did... You know, it did bring out that this is a community that we have something we should be proud of, and let's not just, you know, talk about the past, let's think about the future. Do you want to add anything? There's also a second entity in Berlin called the Northern Forest Heritage Park, and they've been pushing, uh, there's, um, which is the old mill itself, and they have the research and development building is the only building that remains from that original mill that's still there. They're trying to uh, renovate that and bring that back uh, as a historical site. They recreated a logging camp, uh, uh, I believe it was about eight or ten years ago, uh, that is there as a site, but is really only used as sort of a community space. It hasn't become a tourist attraction. Uh, but as they start to try to get monies to refurbish this um, other building, uh, this has sort of been a jolt to say, yeah, there's really something to be told here. So the whole community is now starting to take a look at, okay, can we take these pieces of history? Can we, you know, look at our Main Street and what that used to be, and how do we bring that back? And, you know, there's... There's examples around New Hampshire of towns that have done this, and actually the current project that we're working on is about uh, historic preservation in the state of New Hampshire. So we've been going to some of these towns and finding out how they went about their business. So that's what we're learning from these other towns is kind of funneling back to Berlin too to say, it's been done, you know, can you do it now? So it really has uh, been an incremental thing that now the Northern Forest Heritage Park looks at what the Historical Society has done to preserve and, and generate this energy around the history of Berlin, and can they capitalize on that now in this next project? Uh, and the Historical Society and Northern Forest Heritage Park have sort of been at counter, uh, a counter to each other. They haven't really worked together in partnership, but um, we hope that this kind of project maybe turns them back towards each other uh, and maybe brings some cohesiveness there as well. Any other questions? Yes, ma'am. Thanks. Sure. Can we go back to the beginning and talk about what the germ of the idea was and how we built on it? Sure. One of the things, as, as Eric pointed out earlier, was just audacity. It's one of those things where, you know, when we first started the project, it was, hey, can we do a, a quick documentary on the Crucible? And I was born and raised in Salem, so I, I, that's in my DNA. Uh, I'm not a witch, but it's in my DNA. Um, so just talking about that and saying, hey, wouldn't it be neat, you know, how do we, so our main thing is how do we wrap our arms around our kids and bring them along for the ride? 
so in doing that with the Crucible, that was a short 15-minute piece. And then when we got to Inherit the Wind, it was, how do we make this bigger? How do we get this to another size? And it, was, it, was, it really was, uh, you know, it really was a single phone call to Bryan College. It was, nobody told us we couldn't. Nobody told us that we couldn't call the Ray County Courthouse. You know, nobody told us that we couldn't call Ed Larson. Nobody told us that we couldn't call Ken Miller. It was, you know, it was think big. All you have to do is ask is really the way that we looked at it. And when we called these different places and we gave them our idea, we said, this is what we want to do and this is why we want to do it. And it was always a reciprocal sort of thing. What can we give back to you? You know, when we finish this DVD, we're not going to drive away and never talk to you again. We're going to send it to you. We want to do video conferences with your high school. We want to talk to your teachers. We want to, you know, we want to, we want to, we want to. It's really a cyclical sort of give back. You know, it's a feedback loop for each other. How can we help you and how can you help us? Uh, you know, the Berlin documentary is now we're looking at, we just disseminated it to every third grade teacher in our district because that's where they teach New Hampshire history. Well, now we're looking at every conference that I go to is, we're the third grade teachers from around New Hampshire. Can we get it into every teacher's hands in New Hampshire? Now we're also looking at other communities, and we just found out uh, yesterday that Oklahoma had a lumber industry in the southeast corner. So can we call schools there? What was the lumber industry like in Oklahoma? We found a, a, a town in uh, Wisconsin that went through the exact same thing that Berlin did. Call them. Talk to them. Find out from their teachers. Send a copy of, their, of our, our documentary to them. So really the idea starts with, like we said, that torchbearer. Who has that idea? And then how do you then reach out to communities, museums, anybody else who can help you? You know, we never would have thought that one of our students would be interviewing the person who wrote the biology textbook that they're using in school. We're sitting in Ken Miller's living room talking to him. You know, it's one of those, really? You know, holy smokes. You know, we're talking with, uh, you know, the 94-year-old woman who's telling us these intimate details about growing up in this small town. And after a year and a half, and Josh and all of us would say, we feel like we live here. You know, we feel like we live in this town. These people know us. We know them. And we're helping them to tell their story. You know, it was interesting. When we were in, Ta when we were in Dayton and when we were in Berlin, the, the historical uh, society president in Dayton said, thank you for telling our story. And then in Berlin, they said the same thing. Thank you for telling our story. People want that story out there. So once you do one thing, you know, and then we call Ken Miller back and we say, hey, we're working on this. And we call Ed Larson back. It, everybody that we worked with on that project wants a copy of our new film. They want to know what we're doing. And they want to know how they can help out. So you just start to build those relationships and keep them going. That's a long answer to a short question. I'm sorry. Anybody else? Yeah. Right, how did we fund the trips? The ones that we drive, we just get in the car and go. We don't ask, you know, we're not getting paid back for those. We had a Teaching American uh, History grant that we worked with that got us to Chicago and got us to uh, Virginia. Uh, and then we also worked with the New Hampshire Humanities Council. Uh, the one for Berlin, New Hampshire, zero funding. Zero funding. Historic New England paid for our hotel room uh, three times when we went up to Berlin. That's it. Everything else was done for the love of the game really is what it comes down to. And, and you heard it in Josh's voice, and it's one of those things where we just say, we are so proud to have our fingerprint on there. You know, and, and it's, you just, you do it because you, you want, you love it. You know, and, and Ken kept saying to us, we gotta find money. Goes, don't worry, don't worry, don't worry, we're okay, we're okay, we're okay, we're okay. You know, yeah, yeah. Museums and schools love to hear that. 
Yeah, but, but you know what? It's, it's, we get something back out of it. You know, it, 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 we, get, we get back. Look at our third grade. You know, our third grade classes now have this, you know, 42, doc, 42 uh, in oral histories that they can tap into to help teach New Hampshire history, and they can show parts of this film. Josh and uh, Dean and I went down to a third grade last year uh, at the end of the year, showed part of the film, set up our lights and cameras. They got to interview their teacher. They went, they went nuts. They loved it. And, f and for teachers, please, that's, that's mana from heaven. You know, it really is.